This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Welcome to Retail Retold. Today we have Barry Wolf. Barry is the Senior Managing Director for Marcus and Millichap, where he's been for 19 years. Before that, Barry was a practicing attorney for Aaron Rents, And before that, he was a practicing attorney at a private practice. And today, Barry's focus is on the investment sales market, triple net lease, leases, and shopping centers uh, across the country. Welcome to the show, Barry. No, Chris, thanks for having me. This is going to be awesome. I'm very excited to join you. I've been a dedicated listener, so it's awesome to jump in and be on a show with you. Very cool. Well, uh, I think your insights are going to be really insightful for the audience. So want to jump in for a second. You work on triple net leases. So why don't you just give a little color for those who might not know, what is a triple net lease? Yeah, triple net leases, generally when you hear that reference, they're referring to these single tenant properties. You see, we all see everywhere we drive around and live, unless you're in, you know, maybe in Manhattan, where you drive around, you see these QSR operators, Taco Bell, McDonald's, Panera Bread, the drugstores, the banks, the medical clinics. So it's, it's these single tenant buildings you see all over the country. And you know, most folks don't realize somebody owns those buildings. It's not just Panera Bread that owns that building or McDonald's, although McDonald's is a bad example because they do own a lot of their real estate, but it's not necessarily the company or the operator. There's an investor that owns a lot of those properties. And you know, most folks aren't really aware of that. Got it. And in the, in the shopping center in the, or in the commercial real estate world, you'll often hear the word net lease uh, for a lease that is an inline tenant in a shopping center, right? Is it a gross lease or a net lease? Meaning, does the tenant pay CAM taxes or insurance and CAM being common area maintenance, or is it just one number of gross rent? What is the difference between the, the net lease that you hear in a shopping center and the triple net leases that you work on? The lease document itself is gonna be very similar. Uh, so there's, that's not really so much the difference in a shopping center the true, you know, the net lease, it basically means the tenant is paying the CAM taxes and insurance. Where the difference lies is when it's in a shopping center, the owner of that shopping center is still going to be responsible to manage the property, to upkeep the property, to maintain the property. Uh, and then they might bill all that back to the tenant for reimbursement, but they're the actual ones doing the work or hiring the people that are doing the work. Whereas these single tenant net lease deals, the, the true net lease ones, they're what we call just mailbox money. They're passive investments where the tenant maintains the building. If the roof needs to be replaced, that's a tenant responsibility. 
maintaining the parking lot is all of tenant responsibility. So it's just literally, if it's a true net lease property on a single tenant side, your only job as a landlord is to collect that rent check every month. Go to your, go to your mailbox or literally look in your, your bank account for an ACH deposit. Uh, so there's just totally passive investments. Whereas again, on the shopping center side, there's, there's still work involved in it. Yeah, that's, that's a great description. Really uh, appreciate that. I think the, the audience, you know, that th those terms get thrown around and I think it's, it's good for the, the descriptor. So you deal with a, a bunch of different investors and you know, headline news is, you know, really taking a shot at retail over the past few years. But what is the general consensus of the investment community buying these freestanding triple net leases? Have they bought into headline news or is it is it still a really robust marketplace? It's both of those. Yeah, it's a robust marketplace, but investors are cautious. Um I think we're seeing that the sectors we're seeing really attractive to investors are, you know, food. Absolutely. You know, these QSR deals, the, again, these single tenant fast food operators nationally. Um, yeah, I think investors are looking for internet resistant type tenants. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, drugstores were the absolute gold standard. You know, it was automatic, almost an automatic. If somebody was in a 1031 exchange, they just wanted safe, secure. They'd go buy a Walgreens or a CVS. We really don't see that nearly as much anymore. I think investors are a little bit concerned. We're seeing you know, both those brands rolling out smaller units. They're maybe a little bit exposed as far as Amazon. You know, banks, we're not seeing investors focus on nearly as much because we've seen banks downsize by number of units. So it's caution, but they're still very keen on retail. But I think they're looking for internet resistant type brands and sectors. You know, are banks and drugstores still trading? Oh yeah, absolutely. They're still trading, not at the volume they were again, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I wouldn't call them the gold standard as far as security, as far as, you know, if somebody is looking for and comes to me and says, look, we want absolute security. We want the safest investment. I don't think those type of guys are looking, those type of investors are looking at drugstores and banks anymore or not nearly as much. So I think it's now shifted to, let me go buy a Taco Bell. Let me buy a Panera. Let me buy food or something that is just absolutely internet resistant. So yeah, they're still trading, but not, not nearly at the numbers they used to be. And part of that is they're, they're not opening nearly as many units as they used to be. Both banks and drugstores are, you know, the pace of expansion has slowed dramatically and banks in general, they're, they're closing more than they're opening nowadays. When you're looking at, let's call it mailbox money, you're really buying into, it's, it's real property, but you're buying into the credit worthiness of the signature on that lease, you know, banks and drugstores are still extremely credit worthy entities. And so a lot of these QSR and food uses are franchise driven. And so you mentioned security. When you're thinking security, are you thinking in how reliable and durable is the cash flow stream? Or is it how certain are you that the tenant will stay open? No one wants a dark store, but if you have 20 years of Bank of America on the lease, do you think today that's still better than, uh, you know, a food franchisee that's got 15 locations? It depends on the investor. If, a lot of times we might be working with somebody who is, a, you know, they're, they're 
later stages in life, maybe they're in the mid 70s, 80 year old, and they just want what they're looking for. What what's most important to somebody like that may be the credit of the tenant, as you said. I mean, if I'm in my mid 70s or 80s, and I just want to know I've got an absolute cash flow for the next 20 years, so a bank at a high rent number that may be perfect for me because that's for the balance of my life. I've got absolute, you know, for the most part, guaranteed security for the that, that rent's going to be coming in. Um, I'm not maybe as worried about the the nest tenant or replacing that tenant in 20 years. I'll let my estate deal with that. For a lot of invest other investors, if you're younger and earlier stages of life, I, I agree with what you said. I think the the location, the credit worthiness, the ability to backfill, I think those are all critical. Um, I refer to it as the four legs of the table is the way I've evaluated a property. It's frankly how I encourage investors to look at a deal, which are look at the credit of the tenant, the unit level economics the real estate fundamentals of that particular site in the terms of the lease, like you referred to, I think there's a lot more involved to a deal than just the credit of the tenant. Uh, and I think it's important to evaluate all of those. We see investors buying deals that are great credit, like a Dollar General that's a fantastic operator, but maybe the real estate's not so fantastic in these small towns, very tertiary markets. And if they leave in 15 years, what do you do? Uh, so I think it's important to look at all of those aspects together. It's you know, it's individual to individual, which of those are most important. Uh, but I think it's a mistake to just focus on one aspect and ignore everything else. Totally. And yeah, it's good perspective. I like the four legs of the table uh, analogy you have there. Those are those four fundamentals. So who are the investors today? You mentioned the 70 year old person, you know, the, when you look in the, integrated shopping center world or the other parts of commercial real estate, like a, an integrated office building or industrial park, those are typically companies. Obviously, they're still local passive investors, but in general, it, it, those feel like today the people are companies and they might be small or big companies. They might be local or national, but they're companies. Who are the investors of these triple net lease properties? Are they companies? Are they, you mentioned the 70 year old guy in Florida retired. Who, who's buying these? It's pretty broad. Uh, I mean, you do have these companies, I mean, you have REITs, real estate investment trusts that are very active and own tremendous amounts of single tenant net lease properties that you can go buy shares of on the stock exchange. You certainly have that. So the institutional market, and then, you know, and also these large companies own shopping centers, they own net lease properties as part of those shopping centers. Um, I know DLC, I mean, you have, as a company, you all have a lot of net lease properties as out parcels to your shopping centers. Yep. But then separate from that, you do have this component, as I mentioned at the outset, that people don't really, uh, aren't as attuned to, is just these, you know, they're individuals. They're people that they maybe at one time owned an apartment building, or maybe they owned a shopping center. They sold that and now they transitioned into these net lease properties that are more passive income. They're less management intensive. They still own real estate. Maybe they bought as a part of a 1031 exchange or not. And now they're able just to collect that income and go enjoy their life sitting on a beach or traveling. And yeah, a lot of times it's amazing. I mean, we've got a lot of investors we work with. They sold an apartment building. They transitioned into these net lease properties. And they look at it, it's like, holy cow, I'm making as much money as I did when I was fixing toilets and replacing light bulbs in my apartment building in New York. And now I'm sitting on a beach sipping a cocktail. So a lot of times passive income isn't necessarily lower income. Uh, so that's, you know, we see a lot of those folks that are just transitioning into the next phase of life. It 
you know, depending, you know, maybe somebody who's younger or older kind of depends at what state they got days they got tired of the management intensity that is involved in owning multi-tenant you know, property. Really interesting. I, you know, it, a lot of people, you know, wouldn't think that uh, owning an apartment building uh, is the same or, or potentially less yield than uh, a freestanding retail property. But uh, it's fascinating that you could go from fixing toilets to, as you say, sitting on a beach. Yeah, it somewhat depends where you are geographically. I mean, if you're coming out of New York or California, your yields are obviously going to be far lower than if you, you know, if you've got that apartment building in the middle, you know, in Oklahoma or some other markets where you, you know, are kind of yield-driven markets. So it kind of depends where you're coming out of. But a lot of the folks we're working with are coming out of Manhattan, out in New York, where the yields have been historically very low, and you know they transition a net lease property, and you know again they look at it, it's like, right, yeah, I'm, I'm making similar money as I made, and I'm doing nothing. Amazing. Feels like the marketplace for triple net lease right now is 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 really strong. Was that is that fair? Feels hot. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it is. It's strong. We're seeing a lot of deal flow, a lot of trades, velocity. Um, but I, I, when you, I don't equate it to hot as in like a bubble of any sort. Um, I mean, buyers are investing in these largely. Very significant portion are, are all cash or very modest leverage. So. I don't think it's a bubble I see, but yeah, we are seeing a lot of investors that are transitioning out of these, you know, again, management intensive properties into the net lease properties. Uh, again, just trying to simplify their life. I think it's become a little bit more mainstream, whereas 20, 30 years ago, it, you know, not too many people even knew these existed as an investment option. It's really gone mainstream, gets more coverage, at least in the you know, trade publications. I think more people realize they're an option than they did 30 years ago. And a lot of these investors are what the commercial real estate market refers to. Even even the companies are quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes, ten thirty one investors. That feels like that is a catalyst today. Is that a, the ten thirty one? Is that a catalyst today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if they ten thirty, there was a little bit of talk before the last presidential election. There was some impetus or some push from uh, some folks that maybe we do away with the 1031 exchange or we significantly alter it. If that ever happened, I mean, that would have a significant impact in the velocity of net lease deals. Yeah, a very tremendous portion. It's somewhere between about 40 to 45 percent of net lease trays are part of a 1031 exchange. I, yeah, I think of deals we've done the last couple of years. I think honestly it's closer to probably 70 to 75 percent. So, yeah, it's absolutely a very large impetus to the velocity in the net lease market. So for those who don't know, can you explain what a 1031 exchange is and what these 1031 buyers are? Yeah, 1031 exchange, it's a it's a part of the tax code, gives you the opportunity to sell a piece of investment property. It's not your residential property, but investment property. And you're then able to purchase what's called like kind property, which is another type, another investment property. Doesn't have to be the same type of product property you sold. Don't have to go from multifamily to multifamily, and you're able to defer your taxes. Uh, there's, you know, there's time windows you have to meet. There's regulations, but essentially you're able to take. If you had a two million dollar gain in that apartment building you sold, you're able to go buy another piece of investment property and defer the capital gains until you eventually sell that property and don't, you know, and don't do a 1031 exchange. The ultimate. You know, gotcha. You're able to beat the government as you just keep doing that until you, you pass, until you die. 
and then the estate gets stepped up basis and you never pay the taxes. Uh, because the owner don't get a whole lot of benefit because you passed away. But from an estate standpoint, that's the ultimate is just keep, keep doing 1031 upon 1031 until the ownership, the, the owner actually passes away. The estate gets stepped up basis and taxes are gone. So it's essentially, I mean, it's a way to, to defer legally defer capital gain taxes. Can we talk about the math for a minute on the 1031, just to give people perspective? A roundabout example, not holding us to, uh, you know, the specifics, but let's assume you, you you bought a building for $5 million and then you you said you had the $2 million gain. How much do you now have to invest in the next property? Is it is it the, the, the total $7 million, the five and the two? Is it just the original five? Is it the two in order to qualify for a 1031? We've got to cover the overall sale price. So if you bought for, you sold for 7 million, you now need to go buy a property for 7 million to cover everything. Um, yeah, if you don't buy something that quite covers it all, you can pay taxes on just the portion that was not you know, part of the purchase price. There's also a component if you had debt on the property you sold, you need to cover, have equal or equi- you know, have equivalent or greater in the amount of debt. There's some different aspects of it, but essentially you're looking to buy something at an equivalent or larger price than you sold the property for. And if you don't, then you pay taxes on the, on the difference. So you don't have to sell, you know, cover it all. You can, you can pay taxes on a small portion. Why does it feel that today there's so many more 1031 buyers than there were a decade or 20 years ago? I think you've got a, you've got more, I think investing in real estate has kind of gone mainstream as particularly as compared to 20 years ago. Uh, again, you go 20, 30 years ago, you didn't have a lot of individual investors that were buying commercial real estate. It was more, you know, groups like you guys, I mean, like the DLCs, like the Simons, the large REITs that were owning real estate, it wasn't as much the individuals. So I think investing has gone mainstream to the, you know, individuals, the doctors, the lawyers, prof- you know, professionals, so that's all they do for their living is own real estate. And, you know, as part of that is when they sell, they, they do these exchanges. I think it's, I think that's the main reason. And is the overall, the, the nationals, the volume of trades, was it up in 2019 versus 18? Do you expect it to be flat, higher this year than it was last year? I think it'll be pretty close. The quirk, yes, 18 and 19 were pretty close, pretty similar to each other. And, you know, we're at, uh, I'd say all time highs. I mean, velocity has been really strong. I mean, we've reached levels. We thought back in 04, 05, 06, we would never see velocity levels in commercial real estate like we saw in that time frame before leading into the Great Recession. And we've blown way past those numbers. We now see volume and activity level way, you know, well in surpassing those numbers. The quirk for this year is we've got a presidential election year. So I don't know that we'll see quite the velocity because a lot of times what we'll see it's come September, October, November, depending on how the election is trending. Uh, you can see a lot of times in, a, in an election year where folks just kind of step to the sidelines and say, let me just wait and see what happens in the election. So they may not sell their property. They may just kind of go stagnant and kind of go in a tortoise shell of sorts where they say, let me, let me just let me revisit what I want to do after the election. So this year, I think we may see a slowdown, again, depending on do the Democrats have somebody that looks like they have a, a viable candidate and it turns into a real race? If that happens, I think things could slow down in the fall and therefore velocity overall, I think, could certainly be lower than it was last year. And, and you mentioned the, the, the people 
who are potentially waiting to see what happens in the election. Going back to the original point of, is it, you know, a company or is it an individual investor? What, what do you think the, the, the percentage at a guess, you know, I know we don't know and no one probably knows what percentage at least of, of your deals are individual investors, the, the retiree in Pasadena versus, you know, realty income, who's a REIT? My business, it's 90 plus percent the individual. Uh, some of that is developers and you know, family funds, uh, but it's, it's, almost, it's largely private parties. As an industry, we've seen the shift as well, where it's now become the predominant buyer, the predominant party is the private party investor. Unless you, when you start to get to $20 million and larger, it does turn much more in institutional. But you know, $1 to $20 million, I think that is approximately about 75% are private party investors and not, not the institutional buyer. Uh, but again, as you get to the larger price points, uh, it turns much more into institutional. Interesting. 75%, zero to 20 million. Wow. That's a, you know, a lot what of, do you think? again, a lot of these private parties, some of them are family funds, but again, are ultimately just individuals. What do you think that was in 2002? 2000. I, I think 2000, 2002 would have been fairly similar. I think it was more institutional. I think it's more in particular, if you go back to like 1990 and earlier in particular, uh, particularly 10 to $20 million or two and $10 million plus, I think it would have probably been flipped. I think it would have been probably 75% institutional or 50% institutional. Um, they, I think it's become much more mainstream where you do have individuals. I, that really has changed. And, Maybe the internet has something to do with that, where you know, we just have a lot more access to information, whereas 30 years ago, you know, a doctor or lawyer, they might have invested in real estate here and there and dabbled a little bit. Um, but it, I think it's changed a lot. And you know, guys like Robert Kiyosaki and others that have written about commercial real estate, again, the internet, were you able to read about in, investing in real estate? There's just a lot more information there probably was 30 years ago. Sure. It's a good perspective. A little bit ago, you mentioned all cash buyers. Uh, one of the, the big draws to, to real estate is that you can use leverage to your advantage. You're saying in this world, in this triple net lease world, there's a lot of cash buyers. Is there any leverage used? You said the word modest leverage. And, and why is there less leverage used? Well, in part where the deals are trading. I mean, if you're buying a deal at a five cap, uh, so a 5% return on a a Panera or a Taco Bell, whatever it might be, any of these net lease type deals, to get debt on those is really challenging, particularly to you know, get you know, much more than 50, 60, maybe 65%. It just flips where you become negative leverage. Uh, there's not a whole lot of benefit at that point. If you're able to buy at a seven, eight, you know, 10 cap, where maybe it's more multi-tenant retail or other types of products where you know, there's a higher yield, then leverage definitely becomes more in play. But yeah, on these single tenant deals where the yields are lower, we just don't see nearly as much in, you know, with, with the debt involved. I mean, we do see some certainly, but it's much more modest. Can you give everyone a little color, used a word, uh, negative leverage? What's negative leverage? It's just, you're, you're covering debt service. I mean, to an extreme, you may not even be covering debt service. So your, your prints, your, your payments on the debt are actually exceeding the cash flow, and lenders never going to let that happen. But it starts to become where, 
essentially the the return from the debt versus the cap rate, they're they're flipped. It's uh, almost like an inverted yield curve of sorts, where it's just that you you lose the benefit of the leverage if the cap rate's too low, even with interest rates as low as they are. Well, it's becoming a more attractive rate. I mean, I've talked with folks recently, I and mean, they're getting three low threes on interest rates. It does start to come more viable if you're in the low to mid fives, uh, but it's not as attractive. Understood. Yeah, you don't want the cost of borrowing to be higher than the cash flow that you bring in. Exactly. <laughs> and and so, how does the stock market affect your investment class? That's interesting. I mean, we keep an eye on it. I think the more as the stock market runs up and investors maybe start to get spooked a little bit, they're concerned maybe it's a little late to jump into the stock market or the stock market gets volatile. I mean, we're, I think folks see commercial real estate in general and certainly, you know, these net lease deals, but even just commercial real estate in general is kind of safe, secure, maybe a little bit more boring. Uh, they're not as volatile. So I think as the stock market gets more, ex- more volatile looking, a lot of times folks will say, you know, lead to just safe, secure investments. And you know, real estate is one of those. So I think a, a volatile stock market is, is really good for what we do in commercial real estate, uh, as far as buyers just kind of coming into it. That's probably the biggest impetus, I think. You know, I think there's always this, this question, is there a large difference in buying, and we'll use a, a large company, buying stock in McDonald's versus buying a triple net lease freestanding McDonald's? Yeah, I mean, in that example, I mean, the stock in McDonald's, you're betting on the company that they're going to sell more hamburgers this quarter versus last quarter, that the stock and the profits are going to continue to increase. So you're really focused strictly on the operational side, literally quarter to quarter. So it's very short term. Whereas if you're buying the real estate, you're taking a 15, 20 year view. You still need the company to do well because if they, you know, if all of a sudden McDonald's, for you know, a 10 year period hit the run where they're just doing terribly, uh, then they're gonna start closing locations. So the viability of your piece of real estate may decline as far as having the tenant. But it's a different type of view. You're taking a more of a 15, 20 year view on the company that they're gonna continue to do well. And therefore they're gonna stay in that piece of real estate. They're not gonna go bankrupt where all of a sudden they can terminate the lease. You're, it's tied together, but it's, it's yeah, I'd say stock market's very short term, just literally in the operations, whereas owning the real estate, you're taking a much more long-term view. It's probably the view that like Warren Buffett takes when he buys a stock. Uh, he's taking a 15 to 20 year view, but most of us don't invest in the stock market like Warren Buffett does. Sure. <laughs> I wish I did. And don't have the, and when we don't have the results to show for it either. Yeah, so that's why he's a wizard. You, you mentioned uh, leverage in your world is uh, not used uh, a ton. It's, you know, there's modest leverage used sometimes. But one of the things I see you do on social media, you talk a lot about and you follow the Fed and interest rates and what's the Fed doing. So why are you focused on that? Why is that important to you? I think as interest rates either go up or go down, they do have an impact, not in lockstep, they do have interest in impact on cap rates and what kind of yield is an investor going to look for. Uh, so there is a, a tie to that. So we certainly keep an eye on it. I mean, if we ever got to the point someday again, where you could go buy you know, a money market fund or a CD that yields five, 6% FDIC insured, hundred percent safe. You know, then at that point, you know, you're no longer, no one's going to buy a Taco Bell to 5% yield because any piece of real estate carries some degree of risk. 
So in that regard, we follow it as just saying where interest rates, what kind of, what are the alternative investments somebody can get, recognizing that real estate is not risk-free. So what can, what kind of yield can you get on a totally risk-free, again, maybe FDIC insured type investment? And yeah, there, there has to be a, a, a buffer there. Uh, if you can get a 3% return safe and secure, you're not going to go buy a piece of real estate at 3%. That's one reason we, we do look at it. And again, from a financing standpoint as well, because there are investors that do finance, but I think even more so is just what are the alternative investments that are out there and what, what do those yield? There are all other facets to real estate though. You have appreciation, you have tax benefits and all that stuff. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's part of it. I mean, certainly. So if it's, Similar, someone could buy the piece of real estate, but if it, again, if you can go buy a CD at 5%, you're certainly even given the tax benefits and appreciation potential, you're probably not buying a Taco Bell at a five cap. But no, you, you make some great, you make a great point. Absolutely. There are tremendous benefits. Awesome. Well, you know, that, that's a good overview of what's going on. The, the, a little, some of the basics and fundamentals about the marketplace that you operate in. Today, what are, what are you seeing as the the biggest challenge facing sellers? I would say if you're not, unless you're a merchant developer, which are these guys that just develop these single tenant properties with the absolute intention of selling them and just moving on to the next deal, I think the biggest challenge is where do you invest the proceeds? I mean, if you're just an investor and you sell your apartment building or shopping center or any type of investment property, great, I made a profit, but now what do I do? I was getting cash flow. It was sheltered. I had the tax benefits, like you said, now where do I take that $2 million profit and what do I do with it? And it's, it's just so difficult to find a good opportunity. I think that's probably the biggest challenge from a seller right now is just where do, what do I do if I sell? And, and what about from a, what's the biggest challenge of buyers? I think finding the deals similar, you know, it's kind of similar. What I talked about as a seller is finding that, finding those opportunities, finding the deals, uh, depending on the yield you're chasing. Uh, if you're looking for a good value add shopping center or a great, even, you know, single tenant net lease property with a you know, strong, secure tenant with a solid return on uh, a good location, those are, those are tough to find. I mean, they're out there and that's what we do for a living is find those sort of opportunities. But that's, I think from a buyer standpoint, that's the biggest challenge is finding finding deals with, you know, parameters that fit whatever your individual criteria are. And that that's different for everybody. You say that's a challenge, but in the same vein earlier, you said that velocity is up and there's a lot more deals out there to buy. Yeah, no, there are. I mean, there are deals out there, but I, you know, finding the right deal. And I think right it depends deal. on how cautious, right yeah, deal. it depends on how cautious you are. I mean, some buyers, frankly, I see buyers, you know, buying deals that I look at and kind of shake my head at a little bit. So I think it depends how, <laughs> how careful you are. I mean, you guys know when you see a deal flow, you're seeing, you know, probably dozens of deals come across your desk every single day. Yeah. It's just whittling that down to the, the handful you want to even really consider. So there's sure. absolutely, there's deals out there. It's just how careful are you and how, how carefully do you analyze them? Yeah. We would say the right deal for sure. Exactly. Uh, well, th that's a great overview. A little inside baseball, you know, we talked a lot about some of the fundamentals for those who are and, and consider themselves triple net lease wizards. Any, any, you're in it every single day, all day. Any, whether it's the future, now, any little bits of intel about the triple net lease market that even 
people who are in it might not know that, you know, is going on or any insights you might have uh, for some of the uh, more in tune listeners out there? Yeah, interesting question. Um, I just really seeing what's what's happening in the industry, looking at where things trending as it relates to retail in general. Uh, I mean, something I'm keeping an eye on personally real closely uh, are ghost kitchens or virtual kitchens. I mean, we've traded so many restaurant deals, and I'm still extremely bullish on the restaurant sector. Uh, but I think it's something that has some potential to impact the industry as a whole. Uh, I mean, we're in the very early stages, you know, using a saying with a baseball terminology, we're probably in the first half of the first inning as it relates to, again, virtual kitchens and delivery and uh, those components of the restaurant sector. But I think those are things to certainly watch closely and be following and, you know, see how those that evolve even. I think delivery will potentially take off when all of a sudden autonomous vehicles are legalized where you could have, you know, pod cars that are, you know, no persons in the car. So economically it becomes more viable for delivery. So I think just how does that all evolve in the next three to five years and beyond? Very cool. Ghost kitchens. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of those in the next you know, five and five or so years. So the follow-up to that, I guess, is what is the impact, the Barry Wolf prediction of the impact of ghost kitchens and autonomous vehicles on triple net lease properties? I I think location could become even more important uh, as far as, you know, as we're talking delivery, you obviously need to be near you know, large population centers. Uh, so I think that becomes very important. Same with ghost kitchens. I mean, if you're for a ghost kitchen to work, it's going to have to be near large population centers. I think, I think looking at the real estate is going to continue to be important and more, you know, just as critical. So that's where, and I honestly, I say that's a, that's a mistake I see a lot of investors making. I mean, they're focused on the credit of the tenant much more so than maybe the quality of the real estate and the underlying fundamentals. And to me, you, know, you get back to the old, you know, adage, what's, you know, what's important about real estate, location, location, location. If you've got a a great piece of real estate with a replaceable rent number. I'm not terribly worried about my tenant. Uh, so I think that's, that's probably where I'd, I'd be focusing on personally to a degree. It's good insight that it, you say that, right? So to most, that seems so simple, but this investor pool historically has been so focused on the credit because whether it's in Spokane, Washington or Fort Lauderdale, Florida, if you had McDonald's on the lease, you have the credit of McDonald's and you're going to get the rent no matter what, what location it's in. So, uh, yeah, I've had, I was even talking with somebody, an investor, the, you know, a couple of weeks ago, he had bought a dairy queen in a really tertiary market. And I said, yeah, I had some, you know, what were your thoughts when you visit the property? He may say, man, well, my broker told me it's a dairy queen. You got a 15 year lease. You don't even need to visit the property. Don't worry about that. And I just about fell on my chair. Um, I think that's a tremendous mistake because again, I think it's important to look at the quality of the real estate because ultimately that's, that's what you got. I mean, particularly as things are evolving and changing. Um, yeah, but the best investors I know, the question they ask themselves is who's my next tenant. And if I'm planning to hold for 10, 15, 30 years, generational, perhaps, eventually you're going to have to replace that tenant, no matter who it is in reality. So I want to know who's my next tenant, who can I put in there? Is my rent replaceable? There's so many aspects to a deal and it's you know, way beyond just what's the credit of the tenant look like. Awesome. Well, that's been, uh, it's been really fascinating. Uh, 
I think you gave a perspective that the listeners on this show don't get a lot of because we haven't had uh, any triple net lease experts on. So thanks for coming on. Cool. No, thanks for having me. The last, the last part of the show, if you're an avid listener, like you say, we call retail wisdom. So I'm going to ask you three questions and you just fire back on, uh, on these questions. Awesome. I've been waiting for this. This is going to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Best piece of commercial real estate advice. I think what we've just been talking about, I think it's evaluate, as I called it, that four legs of the table and not just focus on you know, strictly the credit of the tenant. I think it's focused on the, the quality of the real estate, the unit level economics, the terms of the lease, the, again, the, you know, the tenant. But I think it's focused on you know, all aspects of a deal and not just one component of it. Awesome. I think sage advice. Next, next question. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead. That's funny. This is a good one. Um, I actually, I remember this from my childhood. I was going to say service merchandise, but I heard that on one of your recent episodes. They were almost like the precursor to e-commerce. I remember their catalog and the conveyor belt. They were so cutting edge back in the 70s, 80s, you know, into the, maybe they were in the 90s. I think they were gone by then. But I'm going to have to go because somebody else used service merchandise. There was a a record and video company where I grew up in Atlanta, kind of in Georgia and Florida called Turtles Records. Uh, you probably never heard of it. I don't know it, Turtles Records. Yeah, it was Turtles Records. And what was really cool about them is their gift cards were gold coins. If you Google it, you'll see. In fact, I actually looked before this call on eBay to see what they were selling for, if you could even find them. So they were gold coins. And the big thing I remember as a kid you know, your bar mitzvah or bar mitzvah or just birthday gifts. It was kind of a tradition. You'd get these, you know, $10 gift certificate. It was this gold coin. And I wish I kept one. They were really very cool. So I'm going to go with Turtle Records. I mean, I know not even a big mu- you know, musical guy or music guy. Uh, but it was just a cool store that I don't know is even viable anymore in reality. So I don't know they could come back from the dead. But it's, a, it's kind of the back in the day sort of thing. It was, it was a neat company. Did you find one of these on eBay? What did they sell for these gold? I tenants? could only find, actually I found one, but it had already sold. It was a tw- it sold for 22 bucks. I have no clue how much was on the gift certificate. It's not even relevant. Uh, but it sold for 22 bucks. And there's actually one of their signs I saw on eBay for sale for I think $1,500, just like a small sign of theirs. So wow. yeah, I think if you're in the South, they were kind of based in the Southeast Georgia, Florida in particular. Uh, if you grew up back in the 70s and 80s, you know who they were. If you didn't, then yeah, you've never heard of them. All right. Last question, Barry. So my dad came over recently and he, he left me uh, two vests. Like, uh, you know, a vest, I'm wearing it now. You can see uh-huh. yeah, they were IZOD vests. So I'm on Cole's website. What is the IZOD vest I'm wearing retail for on Cole's website right now? Uh, do I do I have a 15% off coupon? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm going to go with $29.99. So you're close. So I'll give it to you. On Cole's, the original price was $65. The clearance price, $26. And right now there's a 20% off if you... Type in you save 20 and you can get it for $20.80. Well, I asked you if I got a coupon. So. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I did the pre coupon price. So. Pre coupon price for sure. 
Well, Barry, thanks for the insights today. It's been great speaking with you. Uh, keep up what you're doing on social media. I know everyone loves all your insights on what's going on in the market. So thank you. Have a great weekend, man. You too. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.